Welcome to the One Nation Podcast. One Nation Party USA is a national political party in service to your freedom, personal capacities, dignity, and stewardship of our land and future. One Nation believes that the time has come to transcend our polarized politics and begin the process of upgrading our systems on behalf of creating a thriving future for all life on Earth. In this first series of episodes on the One Nation podcast, we'll be exploring some key orienting ideas of the party. To do this, we'll be joined in conversation by Christopher Life, one of the initiators of One Nation. Like what you hear? Consider becoming a member of One Nation by going to www.onenation.party or by finding us on Facebook at one Nation Party USA. Disagree with what you hear? Reach out to us and share your perspective. Unlike other political parties, we see disagreement as a doorway to deeper understanding, and we welcome your feedback. You can reach us at participate at onenation.party. Welcome back to the One Nation podcast. In this conversation, we're going to continue to explore this question of what is the platform of One Nation. And as we established in our previous conversation, uh, th- the emphasis is on process instead of a particular policy. Or as we might say, the emphasis is on increasing the quality of the conversation instead of driving towards a particular objective. And so Christopher Life is back with us to explore this topic. Christopher, welcome back. Thank you very much. Yeah. And so uh, we kind of got in to the the beginnings of the bones of this topic, I think, in our last conversation. And we're going to start by completing the first arc of the exploration of what the platform is by talking a little bit about our shared desires and how that can be the basis for exploring the question of the political in a way that leads towards more inclusive and we might say omni-win or omni-considerate decisions, which we'll also talk a little bit about. Um, And so, Christopher, uh, wherever you want to start in relationship to unpacking that topic, let's, let's go there. Great. Well, I'm happy to be here again. And as you were opening that up, I just um, had a thought of Steve Jobs. And uh, I felt like, I kind of felt like, like we're playing a role similar to Steve Jobs here for a moment because uh, he was coming forward with the iPhone when people thought they knew what a phone was, right? And so Steve Jobs might say, hey, we've got a, um, we've got a new phone, but, but hey, just, just give me a couple minutes to explain this because if you apply... Um, what you would have previously thought of as a phone t- on top of what I'm about to say, you're going to miss a lot. So it's like, just hold on for a second. Let me actually help you know why the iPhone is a phone, but it's so much more. And so that's kind of how I feel like about, about the One Nation platform, which is if, 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 if you think you already know what this is going to be like, you know, it, you're going to miss something really significant. So, so if you can hold on and, and, and open up your space and your listening uh, a bit deeper then we're actually going to bring forward something that is is very straightforward, uh, 
um, but is fundamentally new. And so that's the moment that we're in right now. And in the, in the last episode that was on, on this similar topic, um, we talked about, you know, this brave new way of stepping off of the ideological platform and that is these entrenched ideological frames um, where we're basically fighting each other, you know, being played like a fiddle basically by, by, uh, by a ruling elite that, that loves a divided citizenry. And to step off of that ideological spectrum and into a place where we actually integrate perspectives and we listen to each other. And it's, this is, this process isn't going to feel like anything we've experienced before. Um, it's not going to result in the same us versus them sound bites, good versus evil, um, frames that are, that are so simplistic that it's so clear on what's good and what's bad, which is obviously very easy to do when you're in these entrenched buckets of ideology, but in this new place that we're inviting the nation to come with us together, um, it's not that easy. And so we have to have new processes in order to achieve that. And as we said in the previous episode, it appears that achieving that is the only way that we don't move into dystopia. And so it's a worthy challenge for us to take on. And from the standpoint of the One Nation platform, um, common ground as our starting point is the first real pillar. And there's, there's really three layers to starting with common ground. And the first is connecting to our shared humanity, the things that impact all people and the shared pains and the shared injustices that don't have any partisanship, right? They don't, don't, don't impact one person with a particular ideology more or less than another person, but impact all of us. We talked about that a bit in the last episode. The third way that we start to think about establishing common ground as our starting point is what you mentioned at the beginning here, which is um, starting to look at at our shared desires, the things that we actually want. And in doing so, we actually get to rebirth this, um, this political frame, which is government as an institution that supports the pursuit of happiness. Um, This, this takes us back 300 years where life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was a, was a thing. It was a political thing. And I don't know the last time that a political leader has been promising to support anybody in their pursuit of happiness. I haven't even heard the word happiness in political discourse for in my whole life. Um, so we've, we've lost it. And, but, but yet it's, it's one of the core genetics from a conceptual standpoint of which this country was founded upon. So why have we lost that? And what would it take for us to reclaim and rebirth um, the pursuit of happiness as a primary aspect of political discourse? And I, I feel like, like, like we ought to, and we can, and we must actually bring this forward. And in doing so, it opens up a, a new space whereby if we talk about and think about what we don't want or what's going to make us unhappy or what we're afraid of, um, and it's really easy to fight each other. But if we look at the things that might help to increase our happiness, then usually those things emerge from some type of unity, some type of harmony, some type of interconnected thriving, since we are all interconnected. And so happiness and 
common ground somehow go hand in hand. And, um, and so I'd like to share with you some of the ways that one nation is beginning to think about the process of rebirthing our relationship to pursuing happiness as a political issue um, and how we use that to bring forward um, common ground to start the, the policy creation process. Daniel, anything that you want to bring in or, or, or touch in on the topic before I kind of go into some examples? No, I think, I think uh, you know, what you're saying, it's easy to underestimate how radical it is. Uh, this idea that we can be mutually mm, responsible for the happiness of the collective in some way, or, or, or that we can be orienting towards how to sort of uh, optimize that. It's a really striking idea, actually, and, and that that could be the basis or f- could bring us to a point of, you know, relative common ground is is striking and, and very exciting, actually, I think. So, um, yeah. It, it, it served as a, as a unifying force for the colonies and, um, and creating this union. And... Um, I think that we need to go back to thinking about the fact that we've got to recreate union, not a union, but we need to recreate union, Um, which again, union was a powerful political aspect at the founding of this country. And it's time to rebirth that because it all moves towards unity, unification, and ultimately, like I said in our last podcast, togetherness as the, um, as the fundamental premise of our political platform. It's like, it's like, there's nothing we can't do if we come together and there's basically nothing we can do, which is obviously proven over and over again, uh, if we don't come together and you know, there, there's this, um, there's this report called the hidden tribes that, um, that I recently reviewed. It's, it's fairly, fairly current. Um, and it, it did a, tremendous amount of uh, data acquisition from across the country. And in doing that, it found that uh, about 60%, 65% of Americans um, agreed with this statement that uh, people that I agree with politically need to be willing to listen to others and compromise. So it was only 35% of America that said that I want the people that represent me to fight for for our shared beliefs. 65% said, even the people that I agree with philosophically and ideologically, I want them to be willing to listen to others and compromise. So, so there's this vast, like there's, there's this like plea from the American citizenry to um, have a new political experience than we're currently experiencing. Um, in, in another aspect of the report, it showed that, you know, the, 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 the primary narrative of fighting is driven by about 6% uh, of Americans on the extreme right side and about 8% of Americans on the extreme left side. And that both of those demographics are basically white and rich. So they have the time and energy and clout um, to, to, to create narratives mm. and, and drive those narratives through media. And, um, and that leaves 84% of America just sitting kind of like, if you imagine two extreme sides, like shooting, guns or missiles at each other. And then there's just like 84% that are kind of huddled in the middle underneath, just trying not to be collateral damage. Um, that's, that's what's actually happening in America right now. So 
so, 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 so to say that we can use shared pursuit of happiness to move us towards something new, it's not even to say that we're trying to get the two extreme wings that are fighting each other to sing kumbaya. It's, it's what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that we want to get the 80, 86% of America in the middle of that to realize that if they come together and unify that they have the numbers, <laughs> there's the resources there, there's the, the voting capacity there, there's the, the, the citizen populace there, like there's everything there that's able to birth something new. Um, if we just step outside of this extreme divisive political narrative that we've been indoctrinated in. And I, and I had this, um, I was at this exchange with a friend yesterday and he was talking about the bell curve and he said, we need to think about America more like a bell curve than an ideological divide, which is a flat line, right? And if you think about the bell curve, it is kind of relatively flat on the sides and there's this huge hump in the middle. And Americans, I don't think have realized that that huge hump in the middle is them. And it's just this relatively small minority on the far extremes that are controlling that narrative. But, but if you think about that bell curve, then we're looking to empower and activate that bell curve. And then if you turn a, a pregnant woman on, on her side, then that, that bell curve is actually the, the pregnant belly of something fundamentally new, ready to come through. And all said, it could just be that what's ready to come through is a, is a new narrative around our mutual pursuit of happiness. And so anyways, I, I, I kind of diverted to, to bring some of those elements in that I think are interesting. And now if, yeah. if it still feels right and true, I could, I could give some ground examples how I start to think. Yeah. About well, before we go there, I, I think I, I'm imagining a kind of concern of somebody listening who isn't so exposed to these kinds of perspectives and possibilities of being like, well, like what if, what makes us happy is very, very different and perhaps even mutually exclusive. You know, like what, how do we, uh, why are we so confident? Why are you so confident that like organizing according to shared happiness will actually be unifying and not just revealing a further uh, kind of critical (laughs) differences? You know, that is a perfect question and a critical question and one that we're not naive to. Um, and what the, 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 the frame is for thinking about this is that if we can find a shared aspiration that leads to a sense of increased happiness, then it gives us a frame to have a new conversation that we've never had before. And that it helps to lubricate the process of talking about things that have been more historically challenging because we have a shared North star that we're starting the conversation with. And so, um, you know, I'll get into that right now, like how some of the ways that we can start to think about this. And it's not to say that, that these lines, um, that I'm about to bring forward are the solution to anything, but remember that the one nation political platform is that common ground is our starting place. So we're, we're looking for common ground. We're seeking it. We're, we're, we're like a heat seeking missile being like, where, 
where is there common ground that we didn't previously realize there was common ground? And if that's the case, can we realize we're more similar than we thought? And if that's the case, can we have more civil conversations where we treat each other as humans that have different perspectives and less about less like enemies. And if, if we can, if we can create that as a frame, then we can have a deeper discovery process around what you mentioned, which is how we might sense that there might be some mutual exclusivity to how I think about happiness and how you think about happiness. And that if you get what you want, then somehow that means that I have to give up what I want. I'm not saying there's not ideological differences and tensions in that conversation. We're just trying to create a frame that allows us to have that conversation with a better quality of political discourse rather than right, wrong, good, bad, um, good, evil, us, them. And, and to start to blend the lines a little bit, right? Because these polarizing topics have immediately revealed which tribe you're in. And they've been designed to do that. Like we know they're designed to do that. So there's these very specific topics that are trigger topics. And, and you know that a person says X, Y, or Z about the topic is on your side. Another person says X, Y, or Z the topic is on the other side. And so they're used to kind of create this in versus out tribe mentality. And when we blur the lot, when we, when we start by, Hey, what would help us all be to be happier? It blurs the line. So you don't know exactly where you fit in and where your tribe fits in and how you're supposed to answer the question. And that's the point. The point is for us to shake things up a little bit, blur thing, blur the lines a little bit, and then stir the pot and, and cook a new dinner. Nice. Well, then let's, let's get, let's talk a little bit about how, you know, we might cook that dinner, because I think this is kind of the alchemical process by which, uh, something new can really be birthed. And it's, 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 Fascinating, right? So the, the, this idea that we can invoke a process that will raise the quality of conversation, right? So like, what, what does that actually look like? Like, what are the next steps after we've established this kind of common ground? Well, I'd love to get into that. And if you don't mind, I would love to just share some grounded examples about how to start thinking about um, shared desires, which I feel like is the, is the last step before we get into the process. Great. <clears throat> so... What I'm going to do, and I'll, I'll play with you, Daniel, um, as uh, in proxy for, for for communicating to the to the listeners. But I want to ask you a series of questions, and I want you to think, do your best to put on the the left hat and the right hat, and feel you know how authentically you can say yes on either side of that ideological divide. I know you won't do a perfect job, but just start to get a sense for it. Mm-hmm. So here's the first question. Uh, would we be happier if we did a better job of using the healing properties of nature to help Americans live better? Yes, for sure. Yeah. Right. So, so this, so we get there, we get that. Yes. And it starts a conversation around various different plants and, um, marijuana is one of those plants, right? So we start with a shared yes. And then we can kind of move into something that's previously been a little bit more of a challenging topic. Here's another question. Uh, would we be happier if our police were better able to protect the safety, freedom, and rights of Americans? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So that, that's a shared aspiration. We, yeah. We would all be happier if police did a better job of protecting our safety, freedom, and rights. And that can 
move into a conversation around uh, what's typically referred to as police brutality and um, the ways that police have actually not done a great job of protecting the safety, freedom, and rights of Americans. We can also talk about uh, a lot of different topics from that jump off point. Um, how about this? Would we be happier if we loved each other more? Of course. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So then we can get that common shared yes, and then start to look at what are the reasons that we haven't loved each other before and what are the historic issues and how has that led to racial subjugation and, and racism and racial divides. And again, we're not trying to trying to look at racism under a microscope. We're talking about looking at how we love each other more and focusing on that part. Uh, how about this? Would we be happier if we all felt safer? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And so now we've got this huge issue about guns and it pretty much revolves around safer for both sides, right? And I could even start crying right now thinking about both sides just wanting to feel safer. And and there's a lot of Americans that think they would feel safer if, if less people had guns. There's other people that feel safer by having a gun and would feel safer if, if more people had guns. Um, and And everybody has a rational thought process, none of which should be dismissed. But we have this shared aspiration that we all want to feel safer. So let's Let's have a let's feel safer convention and talk about what it would actually take for us to start feeling safer and listen to each other because everybody's got something important to bring to that table. Mm -hmm. Um, Would we be happier if we were healthier? Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. And, and you, and anybody, I think most people, regardless of where they've lived and, and the divide would, would agree with that. And so that that leads into a conversation around healthcare, but not just around healthcare coverage, but around around what I mentioned in, in, in the last podcast around around um, medical error, around the fact that we have an allopathic care system that systematically makes people sicker, that we treat disease but we don't heal disease, that there's we know how to heal disease, but our healthcare system isn't doing that. Like there's these vast conversations for us to have around how we become healthier. The answer isn't just to get more people health coverage. There's a lot of people that get health coverage and they get in the medical system and then they get on medications that make their lives worse. So we don't, we don't want more of that. We want to rebirth how we think about getting healthier together. And that, again, we need the, how do we get healthier convention as well, because we have the shared pursuit of happiness that we'd be happier if we were healthier. Um, would we be happier if we were all more resilient? Mm. Yeah. Right. So we get to look at social programs a little bit and we get to look at, um, we get to look at handouts and we look, get to look at not having handouts and all the ways that those things result in a more resilient populace. But I think that if the historical right knew that our goal was to help people to become more resilient and not to take care of people that are unwilling to take care of themselves, then they'd be more tolerant to allocate budgets towards social programs because they are fundamentally concerned about just creating a welfare state of, of lazy people. And that is a rational thing to be worried about. Um, again, we get that common ground by looking at resilience, not just by looking at needing to allocate more budget to people that can't earn their own income kind of a thing. Um, would we be happier if those who broke laws went on to become productive members of society? Yeah. Right. 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 So right now kind of, Mass incarceration is our way of responding to breaking laws. Um, but I think that we'd just be happier if we 
if we knew that those who break laws became productive members of society and how we did that becomes the dialogue. Would we be happier with fewer unplanned pregnancies? Yes. I want to really challenge you. Like if you put on the hat of both sides of the spectrum, do you really feel like you can come up with an authentic yes for both sides? Yeah. And I think that this is often, you know, what even liberals will say. We want abortion uh, to be accessible and rare. Right. Right. And, 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 and the, the tr- pre- previous right, um, you know, which, which we all are representing to some degree. Um, and I say we all, because over the course of my life, I've actually um, plotted myself in all four of those spaces along the, the ideological divide. So I really connect. I, I grew up in a very Republican Christian home. And, um, and so, yeah, there's this desire for, for fewer pregnancies, but we've never had a national political conversation on how we reduce the quantity of unplanned pregnancies in the country. Now, inside of that, there's going to be moral differences. There's going to be ideological differences. But if we could all agree, if you could actually have both sides of this historic political divide showing up to a conversation enthusiastic about a shared objective, which is having fewer unplanned pregnancies, we have a completely different context for a conversation around um, sexuality, around uh, sexual contraception, and around abortion. And we just need new frames to talk about these things. Uh, Just a couple more examples here. Would we be happier if we increase the respect we have for women as our mothers, wives, sisters, colleagues, and leaders? Yes. And I think that there, I can imagine people who would say no to this one. Right. Yep. Totally. And and the goal isn't to get a hundred percent. Yes. It's to get as many yeses as we can to create a critical mass of people that are, that are willing to have a new conversation on a topic. Nice. Yep. Uh, that obviously points to women's rights. Uh, a couple more. Would we be happier if we had better processes to ensure visitors to America are fairly dealt with and deal fairly while in America. Yeah. Right. And, you know, here's just a couple more to scatter. I'm skipping a couple, but would we be happier if our militaries perform their duties more efficiently so we could make more investments in our children? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Would we be happier if American animals were healthier? Uh, yeah, that one's that one's tough. I, I I mean, I'm putting myself in the in the perspective of others. I don't I don't. Yeah, I I think so. I think so. I think so too. You know, and I think that we need to take frame this the animal rights issue in a way that's never been framed before, that allows it to be less of a polarizing topic that immediately slots people in one place or another, and. And having healthier animals and healthier food and healthier processes and our relationship with animals as our food and clothing, et cetera, et cetera, um, is, a, is an important topic. And we need to find a way to have that conversation that doesn't immediately box people into an ideological frame. So, you know, these are a couple, couple ways. I guess one last one is just, you know, would we be happier if we knew our children will inherit a beautiful world? If we knew yeah, our children, undoubtedly, 
would inherit a beautiful world, right? And so there's there's ways that there's concerns about environmentally that our children might not inherit a beautiful world. And everybody, every single person wants their ch- children to inherit a beautiful world. So we need these ways to have this conversation. So the, those are some examples that we have and we use to start conversations around historically polarizing topics just to breed togetherness and to see that we aren't as inherently polar opposite as we may have previously believed. And if we can just do that, then we can get into a united we stand, divided we fall realization that if the topics in the first moment divide us, we're all screwed and we're being played by those that want us to be divided. But if we don't allow them to divide us by by pursuing a shared sense of, of pursuit of happiness, then we have a completely new way of moving forward together. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, I think that 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 makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, I think just imagining a new conversation where the invitation is really orienting around what everybody wants, right? It was these questions. Like I, I was trying because I'm a pretty critical-minded person to like imagine a kind of Scrooge McDuck character who like doesn't want <laughs> a, a beautiful world for their children. It's like maybe those people exist, but they're definitely going to be like very much outliers. And yeah, it does feel like this is an invitation or, or could support a kind of invitation to a conversation that, that transcends uh, the, the historical polarities. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that all tees us up, you know, cause we're still in the, in this conversation around the one nation political platform and that all tees us up to um, really looking at process. Cause from a, from a process standpoint, we've, we've just, um, you know, looked at all the ways that we, we try and establish common ground. And I'd love to talk more about how we actually ground this into a political process rather than a political ideology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. What's the next, what's the next step to unfold? Should we go for that? Well, in the one nation frame, there's, there's eight um, elements sequentially to this process that really seven that are sequential and eight that's kind of overarching. And so I'll just, I'll just talk through those really quickly. Um, step number one in looking at any policy related issue is to establish common ground aspirations. So to figure out what everybody wants and to identify, um, how to put that shared desire as the North star. Okay. So that's step one. Step two is to intentionally integrate diverse perspectives. Um, to seek out in any different, any, any context, the various diverse perspectives on any topic and know that the different perspectives actually hold different clues and different cues to the solution that will be something that, uh, fundamentally couldn't arise prior to different people putting their pieces together. And so, um, so we, we integrate different perspectives. And then by doing that, you're able to hear these the, a, a greater range of considerations. 
So any one perspective on topic is going to be considering one aspect of it. And so if we have an us versus then, um, if we have a win-lose frame for policy conversation, then everyone's fighting for the things that they're considering and um, de-emphasizing the things that the other people are considering. But if we just all unpack all the things that we are considering that matter to us um, together, then we have what, what approaches what we call omni-considerate. Omni being a prefix for all. So, so considerate of all. And we'll never be perfectly omni-considerate, but we can approach it. And the more diverse perspectives we hear on any given topic, the more omni-considerate we will become. And the more omni-considerate we become, the more successful and effective any policy will become because it will achieve the intended outcomes. It will alienate fewer people, if none at all. It will be easier to get votes to pass that particular thing because you have more people who realize that the thing that matters to them will be achieved through this policy moving forward. And it's really a solution to gridlock in, in, in state or national congresses um, because everybody can see how what matters most to them is genuinely reflected. So we integrate multiple perspectives, which gets us closer to omni-considerate. Step number three is we, we create solutions that meet these different perspectives. And this moves us towards what we call omni-win, right? So if we have win-lose, which is what our whole policy frame has basically, um, I'm not saying that all policy has been win-lose. Um, the majority of what we talk about, about policy is this is what one group wants, what one group doesn't want. And if one group gets what they want, then that means the other group won't get what they want. And that's because the policy itself is a lower level of sophistication that pits people against each other. But if we create solutions based upon receiving these different perspectives that meet different interests, then we start to, to evolve beyond and transcend win-lose and move into what we call win-win or omni-win. And then our goal is to not start stop the creative process until everybody feels like it can be a win for them. And this might sound really complicated. How do you have a topic around environmental issues or corporate tax rates or um, abortion or some of these like historically polarized issues and have everybody win? Well, it's a fraction of the complexity of launching a rocket. Um, it's just we haven't applied that level of rigor and attention and care to creating policy that achieves an omni-win as we have to doing things like um, rocket science, for example, which we've applied massive budgets and, and, and bring in the smartest people from around the world and, um, and apply, you know, huge governmental priorities to figuring things out that were almost unfigureoutable. But we, we did the rockets thing. So we can do the rockets thing. We can actually create policy solutions that meet diverse interests on any topic just a matter of care and creativity and expertise. Uh, what we do after we've created solutions that meet diverse interests is now we don't just roll those things out because it was basically all developed in, in theory and, and hypothesis. So then we want to next to start to run some experiments. So that's how we learn. That's how we know what is actually working. And if you run a small scale experiment with a specific timeline and a specific group of people, and you're observing that like scientists might, um, and you're, and you're, you're, you're looking for data 
real data, measurable data to confirm whether or not the policy solution works well, whether the program works well, then you're going to learn from that experiment. And then next, we analyze that data transparently. So the whole general public can can understand the policy that was proposed, that was, that was omni-considerate and omni-win, can be able to observe the small experiment, can be able to observe the data that came out of that, can participate in the conversation around the meaning making around, around that data that, oh yeah, that worked really well, or oh, we learned that that was actually um, not a good idea, but if we do this, then it might make it better next time. So then we we learn from those small experiments and we iterate. We we provide a, a 2.0 of the policy that says, here's what we learned by running this small experiment. Here's how we changed some things. We allocated budgets differently or we made you know this, we incentivized this or whatever that might be for a specific topic. And now we ran another experiment in a larger scale to get more data. And then we keep to improve the scale of the policy based upon what we've proven is working. So organically, like an oak tree that grows from a, from a seed to a sapling to a full out tree, that new policies grow through experimentation, learning, iteration, and scale. So by the time that we apply national budgets to a program, we are certain that it does a phenomenal job improving the quality of life for Americans, improving the, the safety of our land, our water, and our air, and, um, and is actually politically wise that, that people like it. People vote for people that, that do such and such policy or program because we've proven that, um, that, that those who are beneficiaries of a new policy or new program um, have approval ratings for that thing. And therefore we can, it, it has, it's less of a political risk because you've been able to see that it, that it works. So those are, those are types of, you know, establish common ground, integrate diverse perspectives, create solutions that meet diverse interests, conduct small scale experiments, analyze the results of those experiments, learn and iterate, scale what's working. And then overarchingly, it's time for us to integrate technology software technology particularly, into how we think about policy and how we run experiments and how we support a national conversation through technology platforms so that people can give their feedback around policy issues and around policy optimization and leverage a technology platform, technology systems, you know, using artificial analysis to analyze data objectively. I mean, the list goes on and on how we if you take the seven steps that I mentioned and bolt on a conscious and intentional application technology, then now we really can unlock um, something that we've never experienced before as far as a process that can reliably generate policy that works and helps us all to become happier. Mm. I can, again, imagine somebody listening and they are trying to understand this approach. And they aren't buying that win-win or omni-win solutions are even something that's possible. And sometimes I question it, right? Like it's like, uh, it, is it really possible to engage in a process that can produce decisions that everybody's happy with? I mean, all the evidence of our political system right now is like against that possibility. 
Right. That is another critical question to be asked. And one that I'm glad that you're asking because I don't want, um, I don't want to leave, you know, with these assumptions. Um, so let's just look at that from a couple of different angles. If you go back to the statistic I mentioned earlier uh, in this uh, podcast, that 65% of Americans state their desire for those that they're politically aligned with to listen to and compromise with others they're not politically ideologically aligned with. So that in itself is very interesting. Uh, a, 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 a blatant majority of Americans are wanting a more sophisticated conversation. So without going much further, you can see that that something along the lines of what we're talking about is actually what they're asking for, regardless of outcome. They're just asking for an improved process. And whether this process can produce mind-blowingly successful policies that that, that realize that with a new paradigm, we can actually have omni win, which is, which is an ideal, or it can just be a process that unites 65% of Americans, which is which to, 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 to give them what they're asking for, which then allows you to have a new voting majority, which then allows you to fundamentally um, destabilize the power systems of the existing duopoly, the, the two party system that, that needs the us versus them in order to have their fuel for survival. Well, we've shaken up the existing system just by offering something so novel as an improved quality of conversation, which is just what pe- that, that in of itself is what people are asking for. So on, on the low side, you simply build political capacity by providing a more mature conversation that then allows us to, to do interesting things. And on the far extreme side, we, we produced novel content uh, from a policy and program standpoint that actually produces a more thriving world for all. And in a lot of regards, it's going to fall somewhere in between. There's going to be low hanging fruit to create omni win meaning that there's a win-win solution for people. And there's going to be other situations that are going to be more challenging because the mutual exclusivity of any given topic is more distinct and overt, right? One person says, I want money for this. Another person says, I want to decrease my taxes. And okay, there's a little bit of a standoff there. But even in that, like if we just keep, if we keep, Conversing, right? Converse, as I mentioned last time, is to turn together and looking at, great, what does it mean for you to not increase your taxes? What does it mean for this thing that you care about over here to be met? And how do we all take one step towards each other? And that's the process of coming together and unifying that America is ready for and needing right now. And it will be when we begin to run this process that we will find the fruits of the process. But what I'm certain of is that the process itself will breed a deeper sense of togetherness and genuine political discourse. And that in and of itself 
may save our country. Nice. Yeah. And, um, great. So any, any thing else on the process that feels important to share in this conversation? Well, I, I think that with one of the reasons that a political uh, party has a platform is so that um, people are at least given the illusion of what they can count on, right? You can count on if you vote for this side that you're going to get this and this, or you're going to vote on this side, you're going to get this and this. And so I would love to share in very plain English that if somebody votes for one nation, despite the fact that we don't say we're yes on this and no on this, I want to give every, every listener a, a clear bedrock of what they can count on. You know, if they stand with, if they become a member of, if they vote for one nation in any election. And that is that we are going to create a system capable of bringing Americans together in creativity and producing policy that solves the pressing challenges of our day and takes us into a thriving future together. And listeners, if, if, if that's what you want, then that's what you can count on that one nation is committing to delivering on. You know, and, and we're, we're, we're here for those that are ready for a new culture of politics, you know, that, that emphasizes and prioritizes maturity and care and wisdom and win-win decision-making. And we know that there's millions of Americans that are asking for this. And it's our commitment to, to wave that flag high enough and clear enough that we can bring those tens of millions of Americans together to figure out what we can all do together to rebirth this nation. And are you one of those that is looking for a new culture of politics? You know, and, and we're not going to know until we step forward and reveal ourselves and, um, you know, joining the one nation email list or becoming a member or liking us on the Facebook page and subscribing to our YouTube channel. These are all very low bar ways for people to begin to reveal themselves, that they're ready, that they want to be engaged, that they want to be activated, that they want to participate in this new space. And, and as those numbers begin to increase, then that in and of itself becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and our ability to achieve our commitments and our aspirations only become possible as we begin to grow in numbers. Nice. And, and so if you're listening to this and, and you feel called forth by these ideas, then do as Christopher says that right now, this is a pretty like easy peasy way of getting uh, connected with us. You can go to one nation dot party. That's dot party instead of dot com. You can check us out on Facebook. And if you want to go further, you know, we need volunteers. We need all the support we can to manifest the possibility of a process by which we can create a politics that leads us into a beautiful future. And it, it really is possible. And it's, it's on the backs of each of us. It's each of us taking on our own leadership 
by which we will move or take a step in that direction. So, uh, Christopher, thank you once again for coming on the show and exploring the platform. Is there any kind of parting words you'd like to share with listeners? I'll just leave the little um, little tagline of, do you feel like we need to rebirth the civic engagement of Americans? And if you do, do you believe that it's possible? And if you believe those things, do you want to be a part of it? You know, and if you don't, then what are the implications of us not rebirthing our civic engagement and continuing just fairly ignorantly fight each other and blame each other and villainize each other? Because I don't think that's even a, it's not even fun. It's not even joyful to live in a country where that is the predominant political frame and narrative. And so the invitation is to, to rebirth American civic involvement together. Thank you for listening to the One Nation podcast. The One Nation party is made possible by your support. If you enjoyed this conversation, we invite you to explore membership and volunteer participation in the party by heading to www.onenation.party. That's www.onenation.party.